Welcome to The Bone Beat, conversations on health policy issues affecting musculoskeletal care and supporting advocacy efforts to advance access and quality. Brought to you by the American Association of Orthopedic Surgeons. Requiring mental health intervention for the first time in her whole, whole life. And the stigma that the mental health really, that, that intervention created for her, for her own professional reputation, for her own fear of the impact on her license. It was too much for her. And this vibrant healthcare leader at Columbia um, decided tragically to take her own life. That's a clip from the interview you will hear later in the episode between AAOS member Dr. Jennifer Wise and Corey Feist, who lost a sister-in-law, Dr. Lorna Breen, to suicide in April of 2020. In this final episode of our three-part series on the healthcare policy issues AAOS raised during Orthopedic Advocacy Week, we talk about reducing and preventing mental health issues for physicians like Lorna. First, we discuss the legislation that is named in her honor with U.S. Representative Susan Wild. The Congresswoman represents Pennsylvania's 7th Congressional District and has her own personal connection to the issue. Then, we turn it over to Dr. Wise, who talks with Corey about the important work his foundation is doing to reduce burnout of healthcare professionals. They discuss the barriers to seeking help, how the healthcare industry can improve physician well-being, and the importance of sharing stories like Lorna's to reduce the stigma surrounding this issue. It's a longer episode than most, but well worth your time on a powerful topic. And as always, we thank the Pfizer Lilly Alliance for helping to make this podcast possible. Thank you, Congresswoman, for making time to come on the podcast. Thank you, and thank you for um, bringing this issue to light. We're talking about the legislation that you and U.S. Senator Tim Kaine reintroduced earlier this year called the Dr. Lorna Breen Healthcare Provider Protection Act, which is named in honor of Dr. Lorna Breen, who died by suicide while serving on the front lines of the pandemic. Can we start with discussing how and why you identified mental health as an issue you wanted to tackle in Congress? Thank you for um, asking me that. It's, it's a little bit complicated. I will tell you, by way of background, before I came to Congress, um, I was a lawyer who primarily represented physicians and healthcare providers, including hospitals and nurses and so forth. Um, so I, and that was for as good, as long as 30 years that I, I did that. And so I'm very familiar with the stresses and strains generally that the healthcare profession has seen in all contexts. But of course, COVID has made that a, a whole new um, problem. But I'm, I became really passionate about mental health legislation and specifically suicide prevention because the issue is personal to me. Uh, I lost my longtime partner to suicide in May of 2019, just five months into my first term in Congress. Um, and what I learned from that is that mental health struggles and suicide touch people from all walks of life. Um, the more I learned about it, the more I saw how people that we wouldn't necessarily think of as likely to be suicidal. First of all, there is no such thing as a category of people who are likely to be suicidal. But I saw firsthand how physicians and other healthcare providers have been affected. Um, I now know that doctors have a very high rate of suicide with one doctor dying every day um, from taking his or her own life. 
that's nearly double the rate of the general population. And a lot of people just don't know this, even in the medical community. And so raising awareness through the Dr. Lorna Breen Act is part of my mission. You're, you touched upon that COVID-19 has magnified this issue, like many issues facing our healthcare system. Um, and in your March 12th press release, when that bill was reintroduced, you said America owes an incredible debt of gratitude to the healthcare professionals who have worked tirelessly for the last year to keep us safe. The trauma of their experience and their proximity to this national tragedy is something we must address head on. So can, can you give us um, an overview of your legislation, the Dr. Lorna Breen um, Healthcare Provider Protection Act, and how it will address this issue? I would love to. The House bill, it's House Bill 1667. Um, and specifically, the Dr. Lorna Breen Healthcare Provider Protection Act establishes grants for training healthcare professionals in evidence-informed tra- strategies to reduce and prevent suicide, burnout, mental health conditions, and substance use disorders. The grants would also help to improve healthcare professionals' well-being and job satisfaction. My bill works to identify and disseminate evidence-informed best practices for reducing and preventing suicide and burnout among healthcare professionals and to train healthcare professionals in appropriate strategies and, furthermore, to promote their mental and behavioral health and job satisfaction. It establishes a national evidence-based education and awareness campaign targeting healthcare professionals to encourage them to seek support and treatment for mental and behavioral health concerns. And finally, it establishes a comprehensive study on healthcare professional mental and behavioral health and burnout, including the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on their health. Um, And how I came to lead it, um, just by way of background, was that uh, last term, Congressman Max Rose of New York was leading the bill. Sadly, he lost his reelection in November, and I quickly took over the bill as I knew my passion for this issue made me the right person to get it over the finish line and signed into law. And I'm just going to keep pushing until we get that done. Well, as you know, the AAOS is one of the many healthcare organizations supporting and advocating for the bill's passage. We believe that clinicians need to be able to freely seek mental health treatment and services without that fear of professional setbacks so that their mental health care um, can be resolved rather than hidden away and suffered through. In fact, um, orthopedic surgeons across the country raised this issue in more than 200 meetings we held with your congressional colleagues during Orthopedic Advocacy Week the last week of May. So let's talk about the status of the bill, which recently saw some movement in the U.S. Senate. Can you walk us through where it stands in both chambers? Yes, I'd be happy to. So we just had a couple more members ask to be added to the bill in the last few days. So we're now, I I believe, 97 members of the House who are supporting and co-sponsoring the bill. So we are really building momentum And yeah, we've made great progress on the other side of the Capitol, too, where my partner in this, uh, Senator Tim Kaine, who sponsors the Senate version of the bill, got it favorably voted out of committee. Um, I've made it clear to the Energy and Commerce Committee in the House, um, which has jurisdiction over this, and to House leadership, including Speaker Pelosi, that this is a top priority for me. My push has been very well received 
And I'm very optimistic for a committee and floor vote over the next few, sometime in the next few months. What can you attribute to the growing support in the 117th Congress? We know that this bill was introduced in first in the 116th and now has more of that bipartisan, bicameral support like you just mentioned. But can you attribute um, anything to the growing success in this congressional session? Yeah, I can. You know, you mentioned it was introduced in the last term in the 116th. It had 27 co-sponsors in the House. I just mentioned we now are at 97. So that's a pretty exponential increase. Um, I think the two biggest factors are that I've been working really hard to get more and more of my colleagues in the House to support the bill and co-sponsor it. Um, and we've had so much support from amazing provider groups like your own AAOS, the AMA, the American College of Emergency Physicians, and of course, Dr. Lorna Breen was an emergency physician. And several of the major nurses associations are also working really hard to reach out to their members to get them to support the bill and ask their members of Congress to do so. Um, It's a testament to your work, and so I thank all of you for doing that. And finally, I'll also just say, now that we are, you know, hopefully closing in on the end of COVID, although I don't know that that's really accurate to say, but we're certainly past the initial um, panic about it. um, I think it's given people a, a new insight into what it was like for healthcare workers, healthcare doctors, nurses, and everybody associated with them. Initially, as everybody was hunkering down at home, I think, you know, everybody's initial concern, of course, was for themselves and their families and making sure that they didn't get sick. And we heard a lot of stories about the frontline healthcare professionals. But quite honestly, I don't think we had the luxury of the retrospective view of what just how devastating the pandemic was to um, so many people in the healthcare profession. And now we've got that long view, and I think that's helping to, to, to build momentum for this as well. And so I would just really encourage everybody in the healthcare profession to continue to elevate the issues surrounding COVID, but then to also talk, and I know this is really hard for, for doctors and nurses who are in the business of caregiving, But it's also really important for people to realize that they are humans too, Um, that the doctors and nurses who take care of us are are humans. They are subject to the same kinds of emotional stresses that everybody is and um, that they speak about it. Well, we appreciate you um, articulating that very important message to our orthopedic surgeon uh, members who are listening to the podcast. Is there anything else that you'd like to share or mention for them uh, before we close? Um, Yes, I I really, um, I've heard it said that medicine is one of the few professions where you get back as much as you give. I hope that's true for every medical professional listening. But I also know, and I mentioned before, that I worked with doctors and nurses in hospitals for many, many years. I know it is a hard calling. Um, I know that it is an often underappreciated profession. Um, So if you are struggling, please get help. There really are a lot of resources out there to help you. Know you are not alone. Um, And thank you for doing one of the hardest yet most valuable and critical jobs there is. I deeply appreciate you and your work over the last year and a half. 
The AAOS thanks you for your time today, Congresswoman Wild, and more importantly, for introducing this legislation. We look forward to working with you to ensure the Dr. Lorna Breen Healthcare Provider Protection Act is signed into law. Thanks so much. We are so delighted to welcome uh, Corey Feist to the Bone Beat podcast today. We are really looking forward to uh, pursuing a conversation about physician well-being, and particularly as it relates to the Dr. Lorna Breen Healthcare Provider Protection Act. Um, so, Corey, thank you so much for joining us. I'm Dr. Jennifer Weiss. Please call me Jennifer. Um, and um, please let us know how you came to be involved in this world that is actually quite uh, challenging, sometimes sad and heavy, of physician wellness. So, Jennifer, thank you so much for having me. And I really want to thank um, your your physicians for doing what they do and, and really appreciate the advocacy um, about the Lorna Breen Act. Um, so I've, I came to healthcare over 20 years ago, uh, first starting um, as a lawyer in healthcare, uh, working for uh, in private practice as an attorney in Florida, and then uh, moving to the University of Virginia about 20 years ago, where I was uh, an attorney and did some business development work. And then about five years after doing all that work, uh, moved over to the physician side, the medical group side of the University of Virginia, um, and uh, in the capacity there as a first a, as a lawyer, then the chief operating officer, and now the chief executive officer, I've really devoted my really the last fifteen years of my life to trying to reduce the administrative burden on our physicians so that they can take care of patients, um, and so when I when I became the CEO of the physician group in the last five years, I did a tour of, uh, of my important uh, constituents. And I said, so what is, it that, what is it that we have been missing all along? What, what have we not been focusing on that we need to focus on in service to you? And uh, resoundingly, the issue was returning the joy to the practice of medicine reducing stress and really allowing our physicians to practice the way that they always wanted to. And then a year ago, um, in April of 2020, my professional, my personal life completely collided. Uh, when my sister-in-law, Dr. Lorna Breen, took her own life um, after contracting COVID, uh, treating patients with COVID, um, and uh, and then having and being, being so overwhelmed by the, the real trauma um, even as a seasoned physician in New York City, requiring mental health intervention for the first time in her whole her life. And the stigma that the mental health really, that, that intervention created for her, for her own professional reputation, for her own fear of the impact on her license, it was too much for her. And this vibrant healthcare leader at Columbia um, decided tragically to take her own life and following uh, really the, the publicity that, that happened after she died, my wife Jennifer and I um, received just an overwhelming re, you know, volume of uh, communication from physicians primarily, also nurses and others in the healthcare field 
that they too had been suffering in silence for so many years. We heard example after example about physicians who have buried their mental health because of fears similar to Lorna had. And so what started as, as, as an opportunity for us to share her story became much bigger, much faster, which was how can we take this family tragedy and, and do some real good with it? And so that's how we, we, came, we came to this party, if you will. Um, and, and so I've, I've had this kind of unique position because I'm a healthcare leader. I've been all over this industry for my career, devoted my industry, devoted my life to, to really the well-being of, of physicians. And now, um, and now have kind of redoubled my efforts on a totally different scale and taking them um, across the country and in some cases around the world to try to reach those who need help and try to bring tools to um, to the workforce right now so that they they can be um, they don't have to have the same kind of fate if you will that, that Lorna had. Um, I would love to hear more about these barriers that you are alluding to. Um, the barriers that physicians and clinicians face to admitting to depression, anxiety, um, moral injury. And what does that mean for physicians in retention of our privileges to practice medicine and our licensure? Um, could you speak to that? Absolutely. And in fact, I'm, I'm working right now on a white paper that will say this probably more eloquently than I'll do with you on this podcast, but I'll do my best. So in over the course of the last year and working uh, year, year plus and working on this issue at a national level, I, I, I have identified at least at least seven kind of areas that we need to collectively attack um, as 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 a healthcare community, and these are structural barriers that I believe prevent healthcare workers, mostly physicians, but also I will put a put a note in there that I think some of this also applies to nurses, but certainly physicians uh, from seeking mental health resources. So the first, um, as we've as is now been kind of published more broadly, and we spoke about on the Today Show, is really this conversation around state licensure, and this is the issue that Lorna articulated very clearly to us was that her fear for her license. So you've got state licensure, and you may have seen a recent JAMA article which kind of analyzed the 2018 uh, Federation of State Medical Boards against the, you know, uh, every uh, 50 states and basically identified that maybe one or two meet the Federation of State Medical Boards recommendations from 2018. And those, you know, that state is North Carolina is really number one, and in a quick second place is Mississippi. And, and so we need, you know, 49, 48 or 49 more states to come in line on the state licensure issue. Um, and we've been, working, we've been working with a number of groups on that initiative. So that's number one, state licensure. Number two, and you just alluded to it, is the hospital privileging and credentialing process. Now, in May of 2020, the Joint Commission actually came out with a statement and said to the world, don't ask questions about prior mental health because you think we told you to do it. Now, that's obviously paraphrasing, uh, but, but 
we need to evaluate in an even more granular level. You got 50 states you got to look at, or I'll just say 48 more. Then we need to look at every state's hospital, you know, every, every hospital's, you know, credentialing applications and saying, are you asking these questions? Another level, you'd like to get paid for your work last time I checked. Applications for credentialing, applica- or credentialing applications to insurance companies. We understand that there are questions in those. Um, often it's the same form. Sometimes there's delegated credentialing, things like that. But there, there are questions in applications for commercial insurance companies. And in, in fact, I was on a call just yesterday with one of the largest insurance companies in the country. And I said to them, what's your application look like? And I was speaking to two physicians, very senior executives. And they said, that's a really good question. We have no idea. And I said, well, here's an idea. Why don't you open it up and take a look at it? And why don't you help us lead the country in changing that? So, so the third is commercial insurance applications. Another, malpractice insurance applications. Last time I checked, every doctor in America needs malpractice. And there are malpractice insurance companies that ask questions about prior mental health. So we're now at number four. Um, I actually spoke... Um, actually spoke to two different large groups of malpractice insurance companies this year, earlier in the year on this issue. And they all were kind of looking at each other like, wow, I guess we need to take a look at our forms. And I said, look at your forms. So um, another area, and and I've only heard this anecdotally, so I haven't seen this, but I understand that even DEA licensure applications might have those questions in them. So that's a, that's a fifth, but fifth with a question mark. It's really something I haven't had a chance to drill into. Um, the sixth is um, in malpractice lawsuits, there often can be a request for the mental health medical records of the treating physician who's the subject of the malpractice action. And in about four states, we now have, including Virginia, where I'm, where I work, we have um, safe haven programs where physicians who seek mental health treatment outside of their home institution and through the medical society's kind of gateway um, have immunity or, or confidentiality from the discover the legal discovery process of their own mental health records. And then finally, and this is a, an additional barrier, that I've learned recently was a significant contributor to the death of a Utah physician is that for many health systems, they, they direct where their um, employees and physicians can get medical, you know, where their medical insurance covers them, what facilities they can work at, where not work out where they can get treated. And there are some which require that mental health treatment be provided by your home institution. And so uh, there's a physician named Scott Jolly, whose uh, widow we've been working with, uh, Jackie, and she articulated to us that it was just the ultimate um, in just uh, professional reputation uh, and stigma reinforcer and just a bruise to the professional reputation that Scott had to go get his mental health treatment in the institution that he worked. And, um, and so those are the seven that I've been able to identify and I'm sure there are others, 
but those are kind of the big buckets. And, and what's interesting about that, and I'll, I'll, I'll pass it back over to you. What's interesting about it is some of this is, is, is obviously harder to do than others, but some of it is literally just going to the insurance companies and saying, take a look at your forms and can you make sure you eliminate? And so it's just going to take a concerted effort on a lot of different planes to attack the list and, and really try to eliminate those structural barriers. Well, it's so interesting how there's some low-hanging fruit um, that supposes that there's no malintent with these barriers. Yet, when we hear about this all as a story in the seven that you chose to share with us, um, it's hard for me when I think through this subject um, to assign good intent uh, to this structure. Um, and I am curious, um, I wanted to uh, let our listeners know that the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons is one of many medical specialty societies that are supporting this uh, Dr. Lorna uh, Breen Healthcare Provider Protection Act. And I wanted to ask you to elaborate on how your foundation worked with representatives like Susan Wild to craft this legislation. So in the summer of 2020, um, actually it was the late spring, early summer after the news of Lorna's death made, made you know, across the world, uh, we, we heard from uh, United States Senator Tim Kaine, who's from Virginia, who had, who had read the, the, the article, the original article in the New York Times and was kind of blown away by it and uh, had a son, has a son that uh, is in the Marines and so certainly understands the history of the stigma uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the military. And so actually Senator Kane reached out to us and he said, how can I help? And it was amazing. It was, and Susan Wild, because of her background uh, with, her, um, with her significant others passing due to suicide, um, connected with us very early in 2021 and said that she would love to carry the torch forward for us. And we are so incredibly grateful. Um, and so one of the things that's just been amazing about the legislation is that, uh, first of all, it's already been funded before it's even been passed, which is just remarkable. $140 million, first of its kind. The American Rescue Plan, that was the Biden COVID relief package um, in early 2021, included the key tenants, not all of them, but the key tenants of the Lorna Breen Act. And uh, we have been working with uh, Congresswoman Wild as well as Senator Kane to get the legislation passed because we still want the full legislation passed, but the money's already being allocated. In fact, uh, the month of August 2021, HRSA is running the grant process for the allocation of most of the, of the funds. And so we're just so thrilled that the funds will get into the hands of the healthcare community who really needs them now more than ever. That's, that's tremendous. Um, it's rare to hear good news in this uh, subject matter, and that's tremendous. Um, I want to ask how you uh, reconcile, kind of in a personal way, um, the loss of, of, of your sister-in-law, um, and the reason that I bring that up is I find that when we as a community, a broad community, discuss those that we've lost uh, to suicide, um, I 
don't experience um, enough uh, remembering the person. And I, I lost um, an old friend uh, to um, orthopedic surgeon to suicide last month. Oh, and so um, thank you. And what I've noticed is that it's very easy to start to forget the person and start to remember all of the pressures and the stress and the burdens that led to the act. Um, and is she, as a person, I've seen her picture, I've read her story, I, you know, uh, um, is she as a person in your mind and thoughts, um, is, are you able to reconcile that and kind of keep her there as you go Absol through this? Absolutely. Um, what was, what was so profound about Lorna is, was her just zeal for life. Um, you know, she was in so many ways, she was as unique as her name, right? Lorna, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a, it's a very unique name. Um, and she had this just zest. I mean, I, she literally called my wife Well, she called her like twice a day on a regular basis, but she called my wife one day and said, Hey, if anybody's looking for me, I'm a, I'm going to India tomorrow. Cause they need people to teach CPR. And we were like, wait, 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 wait. And she said, and I'm telling you this because I have a stopover in the Middle East and I'm, I'm thinking that, that that might be a little dangerous. So I just want you to know, going to India, talk to you later. Bye. And it was like, whoa, 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 whoa. like slow down, you know, and, 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 or she would go study for her medical boards. And she's like, I've never been to, you know, spin the globe, Croatia. I think I'm going to go study for my boards by myself in Croatia for a week. You know, this was just a person who just took life by the seat of, of, of its pants, if you will. And, and she, um, she just, um, had this passion. She was a passionate, um, you know, snowboarder every year she would book, you know, she's an emergency room doctor. So she worked shift and she would book her entire, you know, work schedule around where she wanted to ski in the, in the world. And she would, she would come up with these very complex plans and then she'd send her an email. We always got it every year. It was to her and her, you know, it was to us and all of her friends. I have identified the five following ski trips that I'm planning to take over the next four months. You are all invited. Who would like to come? And if nobody's coming, like, I'm good with that. Like, I'm just going to go. And she would go by herself sometimes. And she would, I mean, she just was just, just, she just knew what she loved, you know? Um, you know, she, my wife, my wife and I like to tease that, you know, you know, she drove a convertible sports car in Manhattan because she, it made her happy. And, and it was like, we, we were scratching our heads, like, you know, we're, you know, you know, just like looking at it, like, you know how much it cost to park that thing? You know, why do you really need, you know, anyway. Um, so she just had this amazing zest for life. Um, later, you know, in, 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 in her adulthood, she took up the cello and joined, and joined a, an orchestra of, of late comers, you know, again, because she loved to, uh, she loved to salsa dance. Um, and she was an amazing um, aunt her, her, she had eight nieces and nephews and she was like the cool, you know, she's the cool aunt. I mean, who's, I mean, who, you know, who's got an aunt who goes flying around the world and, you know, doing cool stuff. And, and because she was an emergency room doctor in, in, um, in New York, you know, my kids would always quiz her when she'd come around over Thanksgiving and be like, all right, tell me about the gunshots and all the cool stuff you saw. And, you know, half the time she's making it up. Uh, but I think hopefully, uh, but the kids maybe. didn't know, you know, maybe <laughs> probably not, but, but I would say, you know, in, in also in so many ways, she was a very typical physician, you know, driven from the very beginning to be a caregiver for other people, 
committed to the craft. Um, there's a great story that, that was reported where she, um, she was, you know, cause as you know, as a physician, you're never really off the clock, right? So she's on one of her ski trips. She's in the Denver airport trying to get to a, 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 a connecting flight with her, with her ski crew and on the moving walkway in the opposite direction, somebody collapses and turns blue. Well, my sister-in-law is like, well, what am I going to do? Right? So she hurdles the, 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 you know, the walkway on the arm, whatever that thing is, right. The barrier. And she's, you know, she was also, despite her athletic prowess, she was not the most coordinated individual. So she completely ate it, right? Like she like tried to hurdle this thing and then she just completely fell flat on her face. But then of course, you know, resuscitated this man back to life and, you know, saved him. And, and, and I remember her saying like once she didn't know what language he spoke and, you know, ultimately got him and he she said, sir, sir, do you speak English? And he said, yes. And get off me. Like, what are you doing on top of me? It was just, you know, those were the kind of stories. And so, you know, one of the things, and I really appreciate the question because one of the things that we've really tried to make this story about for Lorna is not, not, not a, not the suicide and, and just, it just, you had a physician, you had a human who was at the top of her game. She was getting her MBA because she wanted to advance her game. She's 49 years old. She was really peaking academic, you know, from her academic career. She was, you know, doing exactly what she loved, where she wanted to do it. But this is not about the suicide. This is about, you know, first of all, preventing it for others. But, you know, we want to celebrate her. She's just been, she was an amazing human and we just love her and miss her every day. Um, so thank you for the question. And, uh, uh and I'm so sorry for your loss. I, I, the last thing, you know, the last thing I would just say, um, about the suicide concept is you know, what we've learned about talking about suicide is the more you talk about it, the more it helps with the stigma. And I think it's just really important to have these conversations more and more so that we can really just normalize it so that folks can recognize and prevent it in the future. Uh, what I've learned about suicide is the best prevention is postvention. So let's look on the other side of it and try to prevent it in the future. I, I wish I had met her. Um, I think she and I might've been friends. Um, Absolutely. My, my very best friend is a grief therapist hmm. and um, she says exactly what you have about the amplification of the stories. And as I say that as a human, I'm very aware that we believe that there's probably an under reporting of physician suicide. So we, we know it's twice as common for a physician as a non-physician to suicide. And um, we also know anecdotally of physicians taking their own lives and the stories perhaps being protected either because the family wants them to or the institution or what have you. And um, I wanted to get your thoughts about that um, and how uh, we um, in an advocacy realm can affect uh, better understanding of the numbers. Wow. Um, there was a lot in that question. Um, so, so a couple things. I understand as a, as an attorney, I totally under, and someone who's gone through suicide, um, as a, of a family member, I certainly understand and wholeheartedly respect families respect for privacy. And I understand that. And, um, when 
And we absolutely, when Lorna died, were absorbed immediately with the stigma of someone in your family dying by suicide. Okay. And we were not going to tell anyone. In fact, I argued with the editor of a major paper because I asked him not to publish what he was publishing. And so the initial publication was actually above my strenuous objection. What I have learned from the fact that we've now been outed, if you will, on this subject, and we had to, you know, and we've talked about it, is that, first of all, the more you talk about it, when, when something like this happens, something that is the unspeakable happens to you and you speak about it, it gives others permission to speak about their shared experience, right? So, so what I've learned is for others, not our family, but for others, this is really important. And, and that's evidenced by probably six feet of hand-delivered letters that I received over the last year from doctors saying thank you. The second thing I would, I would say is that when, when, when you go through what you're going through right now, having lost someone to suicide as a survivor, you carry so much in that grief process. I cannot imagine having to have the additional burden of the secret on top of everything else. It's just too much. It's too much. It's too much. So, so in a way, this publication was a huge gift for our family because it was out there. And we're like, well, okay, it's out there. What are we going to do now? Can't, can't deny it now. Well, we could, but what good is that going to do? But, 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 you know, just two things. One is this permission that it's given others to speak about it. And then second, you know, just this additional weight that's just not there anymore. Um, but I absolutely respect the privacy of, of the families who don't feel comfortable because there is stigma, Right. Um, so if we can get past, if a family is comfortable sharing that information, I think that our health systems need to be more open about when someone dies. I understand again, as an attorney, that they might feel some responsibility for it. I, I don't know, but that they might feel some responsibility. So that might prevent them from talking about it. But, but what I can tell you is, you know, in the physician community that I've I've worked with, there there is susceptible you know there is susceptible to the stigma and therefore maybe not as educated about what even the warning signs are, right? Because nobody talks about it. It's not something that you talk about in the playground when you're a parent, and you know little Susie and little Johnny have hand foot and mouth disease, and you learn what that is from the other parents. You know you have no ability, and then you know so so even just for their own physician workforce to be able to be more comfortable identifying in themselves and in others. I think it would be a huge service. So I'm not sure if I answered your question completely, but I think that that transparency on this issue is what's going to really be the last thing that knocks over the stigma. Because if we continue to bury it, all we're doing is reinforcing the stigma, right? That is tremendously said and well, well above and beyond what I even hoped to gain from your answer to that question. Um, I, as a, an orthopedic surgeon, as a surgeon, as a doctor, and as a human, I just, 
am so incredibly sorry for your loss and your family and so grateful to what you are accomplishing in the world, looking to accomplish. And just, we are so grateful that you took the time to be with us today on our Bone Beat podcast. And um, I honestly, I it, I could talk to you for hours and hours about this and your your spirit um, in this uh, in this arena is really tremendous. So thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. And, uh, and I, I guess I would, um, just put the offer out there, have me on, I'm happy to come back anytime. And, and I would also just put an offer out there to your, to your listeners that if you're interested in, in knowing more about what we're doing and also contacting us for, you know, to have for further conversations, um, we're on the web, drlornabreen.org. They can find out more information about us and there's links to social media and things like that. But just if folks are interested in connecting with us, we're happy to do it. It's, it's, a, it's a truly, um, it's, it's what we need to be doing right now. And, and we're thrilled to do it um, despite how we got here. So thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Bone Beat from the American Association of Orthopedic Surgeons. For more information on this topic and other AAOS efforts to shape the future of musculoskeletal care, please visit aaos.org advocacy.